Hey everyone, Pastor Matt from Susquehanna Valley Church. I want to thank you again for joining in and uh, worshiping God together with us. Uh, we're in our series called Wildly Safe, and uh, there's nothing quite wildly safe like flying a kite, which I decided to do with my wife and kids the other day for some random reason, despite the fact that every single kite flying episode I've ever had in my entire life has just been downright horrible. Uh, it was windy and so we thought well let's give it a try. We've got a bunch of kites that people gave us and so we'll give it a try and we went out and uh, it went exactly as I imagined. In fact I've got a picture to show you what it looked like within the first 30 seconds of our kite flying experience. Um, these are images of our kids wrapped up in kite string. So um, it made me, made me really rethink the phrase you know, uh, when somebody says, go fly a kite, um, it really cued me into what exactly they're saying when they say, go fly a kite. That's not a good thing. They're not suggesting that you should go do something fun. They're, they're suggesting that you're annoying and you need to go away and they want to sit in the back, uh, sit in the background and watch you try to fly a kite that doesn't work and you fail miserably and they just sit on the side of the hill and they laugh at you the whole time. If they tell you to fly a kite, they don't like you at all. They think you're really annoying and they don't want anything to do with you. Um, it, it made me rethink it. And I think like if we're really frustrated with somebody, I think that phrase works so well, go fly a kite. I think we can even say like, you should go fly three kites. Like if you're really mad at somebody, be like, why don't you go fly 15 kites? That would be, that, that would be like, I can't stand you. I don't want you ever around here anymore. And I was thinking about that. Like when somebody says go fly a kite, then what does it mean when somebody gives you a kite as a gift? Like when somebody just gives you, a, and, and you open up, let's say it's, it's like, you know, your birthday and you open it up and somebody for some reason gives you a kite. You look at it and at first you think, oh, this is a kite. But then you realize, wait a second, they're actually wanting you to go try and fly a kite because they hate you. Like, so you're going to open it up and be like, oh, you want me to go fly a kite? Wait, there's like 15 kites here. You must really not like me. Um, flying a kite is, uh, is not my cup of tea at all. But Miraculously, we w one of our kids uh, finally managed to figure out how to get a kite flying really high. So um, check it out. We've got a photo of that thing. I was just sitting there amazed. That was not with my help at all. Um, he just figured that out. And I realized the age-old secret to flying a kite that never nobody ever told me when I was a kid, and you probably think you should know that, but you can't fly a kite without wind. Like if there's no wind helping you out, you're not going to do very well. Um, and I was thinking about you can't fly a kite without wind and you can't follow God without God. And I know that sounds really obvious, but I didn't figure out flying a kite until I was 38. And so maybe you're not finding that out for a while either. Um, you can't follow God without God. You've got to be connected to him. You can't make up for it. You'll try to do all sorts of other things to fill in that void, and you'll do something that feels very empty and shallow and very ritualistic, and it won't be what the God of the Bible invites you to when he says, follow me. Um, and we're going to look at a, a, a really kind of an interaction that the Apostle Paul, this messenger of God, has with the church of Corinth, where they want to be noticed. They want to be loved by people because they're trying to follow God without God. And so they're trying to make up for that God-shaped hole in them by doing all sorts of things that makes people notice them. They're going, look at how smart I am. Look at how great I am. Look at how, how uh, desirable I am as a person. Uh, look, at, look at how many abilities I have. It, it's really like the entire church of Corinth is at a swimming pool and all of them are lined up around the edge saying, hey, look at me. I'm going to dive in and do something cool. Watch me, watch me, like a little kid at a swimming pool. It's this cry for validation. Uh, 
And, and if you think about it, it's really a sad way to live. If your validation is always about somebody noticing how smart you are, how much you've accomplished, how pretty you are, uh, how strong you are, th then your, your validation will always be fleeting. It'll never be what you want, never be what you long for. Um, there's no sort of safety in it. If you find validation in other people and how you look and what you can do, you're going to look for validation one day at a time because it's always going to be escaping you. And what we learn from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 and 2 is that God works counter to the way the world does. Where the world might look for validation, the world might honor validation temporarily through things like how intelligent you are or what sort of job you have or, or what, how nice your clothes are, where the world might give you validation temporarily for those sorts of things. That's not at all how God works. God doesn't look at people crying to be noticed because of how great they are. He often looks at the people who are ignored and forgotten and validates and loves them. Check it out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 28. It says, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. God, I pray that our boasts would be in you. I pray, Lord, that as we talk about being wildly safe, we would understand how safe we are in you because we can boast entirely in you. Um, and I pray that lets us live wildly and confident and boldly for you. God, we're going to talk about the way that we speak um, and our conversations that we have with other people and the words that we say. I pray, Lord, that you would give us confidence and courage that we can be wildly safe in our conversations with others who don't know you. We love you. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. You know, what I love about this text is Paul is essentially reaching out to a group of people who don't feel safe, who don't feel loved, who don't feel valued. And he's saying you're looking for it in the wrong ways and the wrong places. And if you really, if you really want to experience life the way that God wants it for you to be experienced, like Jesus says, I want you to have full life, it's not going to be because other people think you're all that. It's going to be because Jesus Christ loves you and you wrap your head around exactly how much you're loved like we talked about last week. I love the phrase that he makes when he says it's because of him, it's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And so you've got a church that's crying for attention, and the text and the way he phrases this is fighting for their attention. He says, you guys are crying for attention. I think Jesus is fighting for your attention. I think he wants it, and I think he wants you to be noticed, not because of what you can do, but because of how he loves you. I think he wants that to be the core of what you look for in life. He's building this cry for attention in the text and answer for their cry for attention. And he does that by using word choices that, that heighten um, and draw to the, to the intentionality of what he's talking about. He, he talks about it with repetition. He's building and, and sometimes just the contrast of the wise and the foolish. And he's doing all this to bring us to the conclusion that it's not about what we were, and what we did, it's about who we are in Jesus Christ. It's not about how smart. It's not about how accomplished. It's not about how often we went to church or how many nice things we said or how many kind things we did. What gets us validation in God's eyes is Jesus Christ offering us holiness, 
righteousness, and redemption. Redemption is this idea that you've been bought with a price, which speaks to your value, that God loved you enough to purchase you for himself, and he buys you with the blood of his son, Jesus. It does not get more valuable than that. You're redeemed, you're holy, which in the scriptures throughout is always this idea that, that there's common things used for common purposes, like paper plates. You go to Costco and you get a stack of 100 of them. It's not a big deal to use them when it's just you and the kids. You want to give yourself a break from doing the dishes. When company comes over, when you have a nice meal, when you have a wedding dinner, you've got special things that you're going to put out. That's holy. You're set apart for special use, and it speaks of your purpose. So redeemed is your value. Holy is your purpose. And then he talks about the fact that you're righteous, which means you're morally flawless, not based on your past. It's that your past, as he'll go on to talk about later in Corinthians, your past has been exchanged for Christ. You are holy you are redeemed and you are righteous and it's yours through faith in Jesus Christ. He wants you to not be noticed because of what you can do. He wants you to be noticed because of what Jesus has done. In a time of life when people are just looking around at the world, seeing natural disasters, seeing a pandemic, seeing political chaos, seeing uh, people fighting and, and just tearing each other apart, it's natural to wonder about what, what God's role is right now and what's going on in this world. And all I can say is I think God really wants our attention. I think he desperately wants us to come to our senses to realize that we naturally want to go our own way and reject him and don't want anything to do with him. And he loved us anyway. And so the, the, the whole mystery of the Bible is that God's love is so incredible that he sends his son Jesus to die for people who were spiritually dead so that through faith they can come, become spiritually alive. That's the message of the gospel. And that's Paul responding to the church of Corinth going, you guys think this is about you? You think this is about how special you are, how much people are impressed with you? You need to be impressed with Jesus. That's what this is about. I love Mark Taylor and the way that he puts it when he talks about this passage. He says, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they owe everything to God, that their very existence as the people of God is predicated on the activity of God in Christ. There are grounds for boasting, but only in Christ's redemptive work. That you're going to boast. There are absolutely, you should boast. There are absolutely grounds for you to boast. They're, they're based on Jesus Christ. Let's be people who brag about Jesus, not about ourselves. And here, here's where this gets to be this wildly safe idea and why God, I think, drew me to this text for this week. Because when we boast about our behavior, it's like we're trying to make up for all the, the bad things that we've done. We're trying to overshadow those things. So we'll boast about our good things. We don't boast about our bad things. But when you boast about your good things and your validation is based on that, you fear the bad things. And so if your boasting is tied to how you can be noticed because of how great you are, your fear is tied to, be, to being noticed based on how bad you've been. Fear is tied to your boasting as well. But it's not about you. And if it's not about you, then it's not about you. And if you can't claim how great you are, you don't have to fear how bad you've been. If you can't claim how great you are, you don't have to fear how bad you've been. I think sometimes I hear people who, who say like, ah, man, it, from God's perspective, I am beneath his idea of loving me. I, I could never show up to church. And Paul just said, God chose the lowly and the despised things. If you can't claim how good you are, 
You don't get to fear how bad you are. It goes with it. That's the safety in this. This idea that I'm too bad, that God could never love me, is a lie straight from hell. And as far as I'm concerned, you can tell it to go back to where it came from because God doesn't have that message for you. He's got a message that says, you, you were crying out for attention from people to, to try and satisfy a hole in your life. That hole in your life is because you want my love. My love is not earned. It's given freely. I love the message of the scripture. It's about boasting in Jesus Christ and the safety where he goes, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to give you your value. I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to give you your purpose. You're going to be righteous. I'll give you my past, not based on how good you are, but based on how much I love you, based on your faith in me. And so then it's not about how good we are, and it's also not about how bad we are. And the safety of Jesus Christ spiritually surrounds us throughout all life so that we can be wildly safe. Do you ever, do you ever have one of those like, little kid blow up boxing gloves where you get to box each other and and, and you know like you, you can play around with your kids and, and like take out some of that aggression in a really safe way um, and, and you've got these blow up kind of soft padded gloves we actually got some as a staff the other the other week going back a couple months where uh, one of the I think Connor or Rachel was doing something for the teens or for the kids and, and they got these things and we were like obviously we have to do what any mature spiritually minded pastoral ministry staff has to do we need to beat each other up and so we got these gloves out we started to box and like I don't want to brag but I think they all thought because I'm the old guy I couldn't hold my own and little did they know I used to box with my friends for fun so we literally put the gloves on and uh, I I'm not gonna say Connor was running away like a little girl but Let's just say uh, I showed him what was up, all right? Um, it's kind of like that kid sumo suit that you see where you get to put the sumo suit on. You get to run into each other and jump around because you're not afraid of the consequence because of how safe you are. That's what Paul wants him to know. We got to stop fearing the consequences of the way that people think about us or the things that people might do to us because God has loved us so incredibly. We're so safe in him that we can live wildly in life. So he talks about that, and then we get to 1 Corinthians 2. And this, by the way, is why I love bridging the, the connection between two chapters of the Bible. Because Paul goes, you don't have to be noticed. You're incredibly safe because God loved you, and he notices you based on his love. Don't worry about you being noticed. Worry, worry about noticing how much he loves and cares for you. Now he talks about the fact that, well, this is going to change the way that he lives, and hopefully it changes the way they live. So check it out, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so it is with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with the wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that, you, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. See, Paul wasn't discouraged by what he lacked. He was encouraged about what he had. He wasn't going, I, I, I can't do this. I can't, I can't come to you and, and speak to you because I'm not eloquent. I'm not wise. I, I'm not, I don't have authority. I don't have power. His, his focus was not on those things. His focus was on what he did have, that he had the Spirit's power. His focus was on the fact that he had a story to tell. That, that, was, that was it for Paul. Paul, Paul could have sat down and said, man, I, 
I could go talk to these people. They're probably going to think I'm crazy. They're probably going to think I'm dumb. They're going to say I don't have any right or any reason to talk to them about this stuff. But I have this story. And this story just compels me to tell. And, and, and so like you, you can check it out in the book of Acts where, where Paul is a man who's bent on killing people who followed after Jesus and destroying the church. And he hated the church, didn't want anything to do with the church. Then he's walking along a road and, and the resurrected Jesus Christ is standing in front of him. And at that point, everything that he knew prior to that, his whole life, all of it, just, it just didn't matter. Like it didn't matter how much he hated Christianity. It didn't matter how much he thought the church was dumb or how much he wanted to destroy it. Or it didn't matter how much of his life was wasted. The only thing that mattered was there was a guy who was dead and now he's standing in front of him and he's alive. And at that point, Paul's going like, this is it. I don't know anything else. I'm going to come to you and fear is a part of my life, but I met a guy who was dead and now he's not. And so I just got to tell you, that's it. I don't know anything else other than him. In Philippians, Paul goes, everything I used to live for, all the, all the accomplishments, all the things people acknowledge me for, all the things that people are impressed with me for is garbage. There was a guy who's dead. There's a guy who's alive. Everything else all wraps up around that guy. I mean, what would you do? Paul, Paul's saying that everything he thought was simple, everything he thought was foolish, all of a sudden becomes extremely real because he's walking along a road and a guy who was dead is standing there alive. And he's got a new story. Because he's got a new story, he's got a new safety, which means he's got a new agenda where he's going to be wildly safe. He's going to be bold for Jesus Christ because of how safe he is because this dead man is resurrected and he's promised Paul life after death. And so Paul's going, what else do I have to do except for tell others about him? He had a story worth telling. Now, worth telling that statement when it comes to being a Christian in, in modern-day America, that phrase, worth telling, typically invokes fear. Because we think about the idea of opening up our mouths, and we think about telling people about who Jesus is and, and about what he's done for us and how important he is and how much he's, he's cared about us. And, and, and the idea of doing that brings fear. I remember, uh, I remember as a teen at a, at a youth leader's house that I had, uh, it was a great guy named Rod. Uh, we were at Rod's house. We were in his basement uh, chilling, eating some pizza, and we were talking about like stuff that the youth group could do and like retreats we could go on and games we could play. And I was like, I love being part of this like inner circle ministry team uh, in, the, in the senior high ministry here. And, and then Rod asked like, a question that just kind of like completely shut me down. He was like, let's go somewhere. Let's find a place that we could go to where we can just tell people about Jesus. And at that point, I'm thinking like, Rod, the pizza's great. I love the games. Um, I'm going to stop sharing any ideas. I'm going to shut down. I'm going to come up with an excuse for whatever anybody else comes up with. I'm going to be busy that day. Because fear comes along with the idea of telling people who Jesus Christ is. You know, you know what I love about the Bible? Um, it's so different than how I grew up in church because I grew up in church where church was about a bunch of people who acted like they didn't need to go to church. Like they were so good. They were just there for everybody else. They had their lives all together. They didn't say anything wrong. They didn't do anything bad. Their marriages were perfect. And, and, and so that was church. And what I came to realize is that was a bunch of fakeness. 
that that the Bible is quite different than what my church experience was because you got Paul here who's a follower of Jesus Christ who's chosen by God and he's not shy about his struggles. He goes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, he goes, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Like this is just like a mini lesson within a lesson. We'll get back to it in a second. We're going to be a church that's real. Like I was on a Zoom call the other day with, uh, with a guy from church and he said, he's talking about how he's doing. He's like, I'm struggling with being, uh, being uh, short towards my spouse and uh, um, you don't know what that's like as a pastor. And, uh, and so I'm watching this and listening to this and my mother-in-law's sitting on the other side of the computer and she just starts laughing. She literally said, ha! And I was like, come on, I'm on the Zoom call right now. Uh, because the reality is I, like that guy, have struggles too. Like I walk in sin at times and I hate it and I want to be out of it and I want to be free of it. And I fear conversations that are spiritual. Look, let's be real. Let's, let's not be fake. Let's be a church that's open and honest about our struggles so that we can follow Christ more passionately because we don't spend to spend so much time being busy hiding our imperfections, Right? 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. In the Greek, when they use a verb, um, like I like came, I showed up, um, that often implies, implies the pronoun with it. So came in the Greek, in the original language, is, is literally I came. It's one word. And so in the Greek, when they say I before I came, they're being very emphatic. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3, when he says I came, he really is saying, I, I came. But what makes this so really, really powerful is the word order in the original language doesn't start with, I, I came to you. It starts with, with weakness, with fear, and with trembling, I, I came to you. In, in other words, I am a man who is riddled by fear, and, and I'm riddled with weakness, and I come to you with trembling. I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect. Um, I'm going to emphasize the fact that I'm right with you in this journey of telling people about Jesus. See, weakness is, is probably some physical limitation, but fear? Fear is a, a discouraged action based off of a, of a potential outcome. Fear is a discouraged action because of a potential outcome. He's worried about what might happen. Just like any one of us, when we think about I'm going to share with a coworker. I'm going to share with a relative. I'm, I'm going to you know, ask somebody if I, if I can pray for them. And our natural response is, what might happen? And that's Paul and how he showed up. And what he's teaching us is that no matter how spiritually mature you are, no matter how long you've been doing this or how much Bible you know, fear doesn't necessarily disappear. It doesn't go anywhere. It's going to be a part of following Jesus. We've just got, got to be really good at, at, if we're going to be a wildly safe follower of Jesus Christ, we've got to be really good at letting fear become background noise. It's always there. It's just never what we give our attention to. We never give our focus to it. And so, and so like when it comes to fear, we upgrade our focus. We could downgrade it and we could think of all the things that could go wrong, or we can upgrade it and think of all the things that could go right. We can think of the way that we'll be laughed at, the way that we'll be mocked, the way that other people will, will not want to have a relationship with us, or we can upgrade it and say people might want to have a relationship with Jesus. I might not be mocked, I might be loved. Somebody might praise Jesus and sing to him forever 
in heaven because of the conversation that I was willing to have with them. So we're going to upgrade our focus and we consider alternative outcomes. This could go not just really bad, but it could go really, really, really good. It's a matter of what we choose to focus on. When I first got in ministry, um, I'm a person who, I'm, I'm afraid of heights. And so when I got into ministry, of course, the first event that the young adult group I was leading was scheduled to go on was a, a high ropes course. It was already scheduled before I got there. I tried to work my way out of it, and they were like, no, we've already paid for it. You're going. And so I, I remember going on that high ropes course and having two things to focus on. One, I can show them that I'm worried and consumed and concerned about what could go wrong. Or two, I can show people what it looks like to let fear become background noise and I can just do what I need to do and get done with it and follow after what I think is right in the end. And so I remember just literally saying, I'm going to put one foot in front of the next until I get the whole way through this ridiculous thing called a high ropes course, which would never exist ever. Um, I'm going to put one thing, one foot in front of the other. I'm going to get on the other side and show the group of young adults that I have to lead that they're worth loving and worth leading even in the presence of fear. Fear is always going to be there. You've just got to treat it as background noise because there's something greater to focus on. What gets the bulk of your attention when it comes to sharing about Jesus Christ? What could go wrong or what could go right? We throw this back to last week where we can pursue the glory of others and love the things they can say about us or we can love the things that Jesus has for us to say to them. The good news about this is you don't carry that fear alone. Even if it's background noise, you don't carry it alone. Um, this, this, what Paul does in, in uh, first and second Corinthians, really throughout anything he, he uh, writes in the, in the scriptures, we are Trinity-backed middlemen. We are Trinity-backed middlemen. In other words, we're middlemen or middlewomen, however you want to say. Um, we're middle because we're not creating new content. We, we are here. We know Jesus is over here. He says this. There's somebody over here who doesn't know it. We're in the middle. Our job is to say what he wants them to hear to them. We're Trinity-backed middlemen. The Trinity-backed part is th this is a message given to us by God the Father with power by the Spirit so that people can find the Son. The whole Trinity stands behind your words. The whole Trinity stands behind your words. The Father gives us the message. The Spirit gives us the power so that people can find the Son. That's what we keep at the forefront of our minds. I want to give you, I want to give you four keys for how to be, um, we'll, we'll say this, a non-awkward middleman. So the fear thing, you've just got to do it. Like you just got to see that the greater results are there. But we also want to do it effectively because wildly safe doesn't mean we live without wisdom. It means we live without fear. doesn't mean we live without wisdom. So four keys to help us not be an awkward middleman and help us to be most effective as we share our story with people who don't know Jesus Christ. Number one, and I love this one, your reputation precedes you. Your, your reputation, the way that you speak, the way that you use words is going to precede you before you get to somebody else and use your words to tell them about Jesus. So if you've got a habit of complaining, if you've got a habit of gossiping, if you've got a habit uh, of always talking about somebody who's not in the room or always saying something that, that is negative and just as heavy to people, you can't expect to go to people and say things about Jesus being positive and loving and for them to go like, wait a second, isn't that the same guy who just spent four hours complaining about how awful this job is? Your reputation precedes you, right? Proverbs 25 and verse 18 says, uh, like a club or a sword or a, a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor, that your words can turn you into a weapon. 
And this idea that, that you can be a club and, uh, and you can go around clubbing people and still be for Jesus is not a thing. There's no such thing as clubbing people for Jesus. That doesn't exist. We need to stop using our words to tear people down, to tear things down because they tear us down too. Our reputation goes before us. Proverbs 16, 24 gives us the alternative to that what we do with our words. We talked about this at Christmas. We gave you that little honey jar if you came to the Christmas Eve service. Proverbs 16, 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. You can be a club or you can be sweet to the soul. Which one of those is going to be the reputation you want when it's time to share your story with somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ? If you're a club, you're going to rob your very words of the power of the gospel before you even have a chance to say anything. Second one is this, is let's be casual, not spiritual. We all know that person who, when they talk about God, talks about it in this special voice. Like they, they, they all of a sudden have this spiritual way that they're going to talk. So they'll have a normal conversation, and then all of a sudden it's like, but thou art holy. And maybe they don't say thou. Uh, maybe it's just this softer way of communicating. Look, just be casual. Be yourself. Tell your story the way you experienced it as you would tell any other story with a conviction, with a genuineness. Let people know what God has done about you and tell them like you tell them anything else and tell them with love and with passion. But by all means, please don't be like soft or spiritually fake. Just be real. Um, I, I remember a, a young lady I went to high school with who um, had this reputation of being this overly spiritual, overly flowerful young lady, and it was just always light and airy, and, and nobody ever wanted to talk with her because they always felt like it was fake, like it was just a painted-on spirituality. Just be real with people um, and, and, and understand that people want to know the real you, and they want to see how the real you connects with the real God. That's what it's about. Number three, um, and this one's huge, we don't try to get dead people to have better hygiene. We don't try to get dead people to smell better, to look better, to sound better. Um, nobody's leaned over a casket and said, you know, hey, I wish you would uh, floss your teeth more. No, because the person at that point is dead. Hygiene is off the table for what we can ask of them. The same is true of spirituality. We can't expect somebody to clean up their lives before they come to faith in Jesus Christ spiritually dead people need to become spiritually alive before they become spiritually mature followers of Jesus Christ. And if we get that wrong, it's going to be chaotic. We're going we're to just really mix it up and drive people away from Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters before they know Christ is coming to Jesus Christ. They've got to believe in him before he does a work to change them. Spiritual life becomes before, comes before spiritual maturity. So we don't try to get dead people to have better hygiene. Fourth one is this is that God guarantees our words. He doesn't guarantee the results that we want. In Acts chapter 7, I'd love for you to read it. In Acts chapter 7, um, uh, Luke, as he records the book of Acts, records this incredible speech by a man named Stephen. Who It's just really, it's well-worded. It's, it's, um, it's powerful. It's moving. He gives a speech, and then they kill him. God guarantees the words. He doesn't guarantee the results we want. The truth is God did do some incredible results from that story, from that speech. It was just after Stephen's life. And Stephen's probably in heaven enjoying the fact that we're talking about him right now and loving his God and following after him. But God does not guarantee that because we share with people. He, he promises he'll give us the words. He doesn't guarantee that they're going to they're gonna listen to him. And so here's the deal. We've got to be okay <coughs> when it comes to talking to other people about Jesus. 
We've just got to be really okay with going to them and saying, I don't know how this is going to turn out. They could hate me. They could think I'm stupid. Or they could fall madly in love with Jesus Christ and be saved by him. That's what we hope for. I'm either going to be another person they forget, a person they won't like, or a person they'll never forget. I'll either be a person they forget, a person they won't like, or a person they'll never forget. And the key is, if you want to be the last one, if you want to be the person they never forget, you've got to be willing to risk being one of the first two. You've got to be okay with being a person that others don't like or a person that people forget about if you're going to be a person who they never forget because Jesus is one that's worth talking to because we never want people to forget about him. And so what's it matter if nobody really notices and thinks highly of me? At the end of the day, if a couple of people, if, if I mean, God willing, lots of people notice Jesus Christ and fall in love with him. And so let's have wildly safe conversations because we don't have to be noticed by others to feel loved. We're safe in Jesus Christ because of his redemption, his holiness, and his righteousness. We don't have to walk around afraid because we're focusing on what God's called us to. And we're going to be a people who are going to be wise. And we're not going to be awkward, but we're going to be middlemen backed by the Trinity so that we can see God do some absolutely incredible things. I was uh, in the mountains the other day, and I was lifting and carrying some firewood around and some of the logs that I was carrying were, were really, really heavy. And some of them were really, really light. And as I lifted the really heavy ones, what I noticed was they were soaked with water. They'd been out in the rain. They weren't covered over. And they were at least three to four times as heavy as the ones that were dry. The difference between words that are soaked with fear and words that are soaked with confidence in Jesus Christ, backed by the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is the difference between whether your words are, are heavy or light for you. Let's have love-soaked firewood that we carry around, love-soaked words that we carry around, not fear-soaked words, because we're afraid of what might happen. God might do something incredible. We're a church that expects God to do great things that comes with our conversations as well, because He always has. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we love you and we praise you and we ask that you work through our words in some incredible ways. In your son's name we pray, amen.